1: I'm Robert Tasker, Professor of Neurology and Anesthesia at Boston Children's Hospital. Today, it's a privilege and honor to welcome and introduce to you Professor Dr. Mark Rogers. Many of you will know of him from Rogers' textbook of Pediatric Intensive Care Medicine, now in its fifth edition. After training in four specialties at Harvard and Duke, he became the first Professor and Chair of Anesthesia Critical Care Medicine at Johns Hopkins. And this year, The unit that he founded at the Johns Hopkins Hospital had its 40th anniversary. Today he is going to talk to us about pediatric intensive care, its past, present, and future. Professor Rogers, thank you for coming. Uh, What I'd like to have you focus on to begin with is to think about the... uh, elements that really led to the development of pediatric intensive care in the 1960s. If you like, where did we come from?
2: Well, uh, it's my pleasure to, uh, to address this topic because it's now nearly 50 years since I began this journey and it has been exciting and it's been wonderful to see the development, but I'd like to explain it to you and I'd like to do it in a special way. I would like to tell you about the history of how it actually developed, but it's not my intention to make the history the main topic of the talk. The main topic of the talk is how it's possible to do innovative things in an academic setting, looking at the environment, looking at the various components of the uh, economics and the science and the technology, and trying to figure out how to make changes that you anticipate will be very important. The reason why I'm doing this is because my hope and aspiration that in explaining to you how I approach this problem, the circumstances may be that some of you listening may be able to see opportunities for the future development of the field, which clearly will change even more in the next 50 years than it did in the last 50 years. In the 1960s, late 1950s, early 1960s, uh, during the polio epidemics, children were cared for in the iron lung. And the reason for this was there were no other ways to ventilate the patient. It might surprise you to learn that even the President of the United States could not get what you take for granted today his son cared for when he had hyaline membrane disease and needed what we would say today to be on a ventilator. There were no ventilators. When the Kennedy baby, Patrick Bouvier Kennedy, was brought to Boston, he was cared for in a hyperbaric chamber because there were no ventilators that were available. And So what respiratory care was available for newborns in the period of time when I started? This is starting in 1969 and I think you'll be shocked. You may respond that Dr. Mary Ellen Avery, later to become, uh, originally at Hopkins, later become professor at, at Harvard, had discovered that Highland membrane disease was uh, caused by uh, a lack of surfactant. But even today, treating with surfactant is not the way to treat Highland membrane disease. It's respiratory care and the use of substances, like, uh, techniques such as PEEP, that turned out to be important. And it wasn't possible to do it in that period of time because there were no ventilators that could provide it. And when I was an intern at Harvard, one of the great places in the United States, the circumstance was that if you wanted to ventilate a baby who was born prematurely, the baby had to survive 24 hours on its own in order to be put on a ventilator. They were only allowed two blood gases a day because the technician lived miles away and would only come in twice for the whole intensive care unit, and you had to choose what you would be willing to do. And if they were put on a ventilator... This is most shocking. You would find they would put on a Harvard animal ventilator that was used for cats. There were no respiratory ventilator support systems for children. Just remarkable. So if you look at where we are today compared to where we were, you have an idea of the journey that we've made so far. So the state of cardiac intensive care was likewise just absolutely rudimentary. I, I think you'll be shocked as well. It turns out that cardiac care developed from treating patients who had uh, uh, congenital heart disease. And you may not know, and I'd like to point out to you where this started. It started not with a machine, it started with cross-circulation. It turns out that many people, including Dr. Lily High at the University of Minnesota, developed techniques for uh, uh, using the mother's circulation and attaching the baby to the mother. So the blood came out of the baby into the mother, from the mother back to the baby, and the mother's lungs with a ventilatory support system. So this is true all the way through the early 1960s uh, when uh, new developments came about, but it shows where we started. By the late 1960s and early 1970s, there was a new technique, and it turned out to be fundamentally important not only for cardiac surgery for children, but also for techniques used for other reasons, and this was the development by Sir Brian Barrett Boys of New Zealand on deep hypothermic cardiac arrest. For those of you who are not familiar with this in small infants and children, Certainly, well under two years of age, you can actually bring their temperatures down to the range of 30 degrees, turn off the circulation, open uh, the the heart, and and repair it, and then warm the baby up as the heart begins to function better. Well, this was just monumental, monumental, and in order to do this, you had to develop all new techniques and people to care for the patients and intensive care facilities, at least in the post-operative period. But it also opened the potential use of hypothermia, which became absolutely critical in the setting of pediatric intensive care as it ultimately developed for a variety of different uh, conditions. The state of intensive care was so poor that it actually was possible to publish articles on the simple technique of putting in a radial artery catheter. This is a radial artery catheter uh, uh, put in a neonate, and the reason we were doing it was because of the fact that there was uh, uh, an umbilical artery that could not be cannulated. You had to find another way to monitor blood gases. There was no non-invasive way, and a number of my co-authors here made major contributions for the development of pediatric intensive care. In addition, there was no, I want to emphasize no, neurologic concept of intensive care. There was no, it was not not available. No one thought about it. Now, you can already have the insight to see that there was hypothermia developing, and there would be some potential developments coming, and I'll take you through those as we go further in. I'd like to point out that 40 years later, actually this is now uh, 47 years since the exact patients I showed you were being cared for. We've had the 40th anniversary of the pediatric intensive care unit at Hopkins and similar uh, anniversaries of about the same length, maybe a little longer, but whatever, at the uh, uh, Philadelphia Children's Hospital, a children's hospital in, uh, in Toronto. And now it's an organized specialty. And part of my job in doing this is to explain to you how we could go from this beginning, which you could describe as rudimentary, you also could describe it as abysmal, to where we have now this enormous state of technology and support to care for critically ill children. Uh, So the message is, how do you create tilt events that allow you to take science, technology, politics, and economics and analyze them and see where to pressure, where to make change, how do you create the support system that's necessary to, to do this? In order to understand this, you have to understand a little history. Everything occurs in a real world, not inside a pediatric intensive care unit, not inside a pediatric department, not inside a medical school or a hospital. It includes, occurs in the real world. The single event most responsible for pediatric intensive care turns out unequivocally to be the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War was a critical event for a variety of reasons that I'll mention to you, but it is always true that wars produce progress in technology to advance the war or to care for the people injured by the war, the soldiers. And in this particular case, the enormous investment that the United States was making in Vietnam resulted in enormous investments in caring for the soldiers who were injured, and that resulted in a surge in intensive care and a surge in pediatric intensive care. The first one to point out is the helicopter. Uh, Medevac helicopters had been used somewhat in the Korean War, but there was no method for doing this in a fashion where you could reproducibly for 15-20 minutes get someone from the field to a serious hospital. By the time of the Vietnam War this was an expectation you would be able to to do this in a very short period of time. Uh, It didn't take long for people returning from the Vietnam War to understand that the same kind of casualties could be produced in an interstate highway in, uh, in the United States and if I only had a helicopter and a place to take them I would be able to care for those patients. So, uh, Maryland was one of the states early on uh, to develop a state trauma helicopter, and you could have this helicopter leave from the roof of a trauma center, go out to anywhere in Maryland, pick a patient up, and bring the patient back to the trauma center. Now, Maryland did this in two fashions. One fashion was the adults would go to Maryland, the University of Maryland Medical Center, the shock trauma unit, but all the children would go to Johns Hopkins. Now we started to have a flow of trauma patients. It didn't take long for near drowning to be added to trauma. It didn't take long for meningitis with seizures to be added to to trauma. And pretty soon we had a flow of patients into Johns Hopkins, which required us to gear up to be able to do this. So the pulmonary uh, ICU advances from the Vietnam War parallel the progress made in transport. So as an example, the problem of shock lung, which we call today adult respiratory distress syndrome, uh, and that was an outcome from the Vietnam War as well. This is the evolution in the language. It went from shock lung to wet lung to denang lung, da Nang being, by the way, a place in Vietnam uh, where there were a number of battles, to stiff lung to pump lung, meaning you could get similar injuries or from the cardiopulmonary bypass, to the general category of acute respiratory distress syndrome. And the army, was instrumental in developing centers to do this. Some of them were in the United States where they'd fly patients back. I believe one of them was in San Antonio. They developed a whole group of very prominent respiratory physiologists, clinicians who became intensive care doctors. And the spin-off from this was the technology, the science, the rest of the things were transferable to pediatrics, but it had to be done not with Army soldiers, it had to be done in units that were formed in pediatric intensive care centers uh, in the United States and, and around the the world. So shock lung in Vietnam led to US army support for pulmonary ICUs, for new ventilators and multiple new respiratory techniques. And I alluded to earlier the technique of PEEP, positive end expiratory pressure, which was used for shock lung, for danang lung, for adult respiratory distress stress syndrome, but as you know, a number of people made the observation that positive end expiratory pressure was useful for infantile respiratory distress syndrome, and as a result of that, that's really what the cure treatment is in the history of, of treating uh, what we used to call highland membrane disease, and that came from the ventilator support techniques experimented with, pioneered in by the Army after the Vietnam War, during and after the Vietnam War. Now, related to this was the development of uh, ventilators for children. This is an early, what we would call, baby bird ventilator. This was one of the first ventilators which was not so large in the volume that it delivered, not so uh, difficult to administer, allowed you to give PEEP, allowed the patient to inspire, and you could control these things. But this was a development that didn't occur till the mid-1970s. It was uh, uh, an outcome, uh, perhaps, couple years earlier, but in that period of time, and it was a major development to be able to care for infants, and then they made the larger uh, uh, ventilators that you use in adults manageable for patients who are 16, 15, 12, 8, 10, so between the baby bird being used, somewhat higher level patient, the adult ventilators being uh, made flexible enough with new technology to care for for children of uh, uh, middle age, it was possible to have ventilatory support. So the military advances in technology led the same thing for the cardiac intensive care unit. You have to remember that in this period of time, in the 1960s for sure, early 1970s, there were major advances in cardiac care for adults. The concept of coronary artery bypass surgery had been developed, that was novel. Uh, they needed post-operative care. Of all the developments, I'd only like to highlight one which I like telling people about. It has to do with how do you measure blood oxygen non-invasively. It turns out that this technology, if you look into it, is actually a spin-off for military technology. The military had been developing satellites, satellites to use near-infrared light in different wavelengths to interrogate biologic tissue to see whether or not the tissue was alive or dead. Now, that obtuse, strange sounding thing means is the Russian wheat crop alive and doing well or is the Russian wheat crop dying? Is the defoliant that we use in Vietnam taking care of getting rid of the trees or not? Where did it work? Where did it not work? But the principle of using it, which was near infrared light, shows pictures in which you could differentiate. There's a city view and you could see where there's there's, uh, not as much foliage in one color as compared to more foliage in the other color. Now just think about this, instead of being shot that way, shot across your finger and looking at the uh, infrared light, near-infrared light band for oxygenated hemoglobin and unoxygenated hemoglobin, and the military background is what's responsible for the pulse oximeter. This is one of the older Nelcor pulse oximeters, which revolutionized care because you now could care for patients whose fingertips could give you a sense of what their oxygen content was. Uh, you could get a uh, follow them non-invasively It meant that you didn't need to instrument them in in arterial ways, and you could follow them continuously. So we're beginning to have the fundamental principles of pediatric intensive care. And the final one was in head injuries, which led to ICP monitoring and neurologic intensive care. It's clear how many head injuries occurred, blast injuries, bullet injuries, other things. The Army had to develop techniques for this, and they developed. Cadres of neurosurgeons and neurologists were trained to care for this in new and innovative ways. And out of that came the first original work on brain edema. And brain edema led to the concepts of cerebral perfusion, ICP monitoring, cerebral blood flow. And that ended up being, as we all know, one of the key elements in pediatric intensive care. But it didn't come because of the children. It came out of transferring the military-achieved progress in adults, soldiers, to children.
1: I'd like to turn to our colleagues around the world now and ask you some questions. In your response, please state your city and country location. Do you know how your unit was set up? In which department did it originate? What type of unit do you have? Is it a pure pediatric unit, a cardiac unit, a combined adult and pediatric unit, or a combined pediatric and neonatal unit? when and what were the circumstances of its origin. Professor Rogers, after the Johns Hopkins Hospital, you moved to Duke as CEO of the hospital and also vice chancellor of the university for health affairs. You then went into uh, biotechnology and biopharmacology and you have a unique vantage point for looking at health care in general. So now it comes to the second part. So what is your vantage point as you look at where pediatric intensive care is now? If you like, what are we?
2: Okay, I think that it's important to go through this, but I'd like to perhaps start a little bit back from the word now and explain how these advances resulted in the specialty and what was the innovative, almost entrepreneurial academic approach that anticipated these developments. So what I'd like to say is there was a surge in PICU interest out of all of this. And suddenly, as I alluded to in the transfer of patients, we had near drowning. We had a disease called Rye syndrome, which was an unknown cause, eventually thought to be linked to aspirin administration, in which patients came in with massive uh, brain edema. It was an epidemic, basically, uh, and liver failure, and they needed ICP monitoring. We had all kinds of brain injury that was associated with these kind of problems, and there was. There is now new work indicating that barbiturates and hypothermia might be useful in this because people knew that you could tolerate significant hypothermia from Dr. Barrett-Boy's work, and you could therefore perhaps not have circulation or have impaired circulation and survive. And uh, a group of people at the University of Pittsburgh decided to test barbiturates, thinking that if you anesthetize the brain, you would lower the oxygen consumption of the brain, which would result in its ability to live, even if its total blood flow and total oxygen delivery was somewhat impaired. Uh, just to show you where this began, this actually began in, in, uh, uh, with rats who were put inside uh, uh, glass vessels after having been given uh, uh, barbiturates or not and the oxygen was taken out of the vessels and the circumstance were that the rats who had the barbiturates, rats or mice, lasted longer before they uh, went down than did the ones who were untreated. And we began, therefore, to develop the concepts of deep hypothermic barbitary coma, which was very encouraging, has not fully worked out, but was a stimulus to begin to use the intensive care of children as a way to, in a sense, it's a, to treat with new therapy, to see if it affects people whose outcome is terrible, with new therapy that would improve the outcome. So now we had... Couple things going on and what happened was the pediatric cardiac surgery led to post-operative intensive care units where anesthesiologists would stay for long periods of time with pediatric cardiologists, and there was a recovery room led uh, post-op area with full-time staff, not yet an intensive care unit, but a quasi-intensive care unit. Who ultimately, The regionalization of care that came with the helicopters and with the expertise led to 24-7 medical expertise needed, nursing expertise needed, equipment technology being needed and now we're into the concept of a pediatric intensive care unit as a physical location in which these patients could be congregated with staff, nurses, uh, respiratory therapists and technology that was able to do this uh, 24 hours a day. So when you look at this, we've now reached a place in which the science has made progress, the technology has made progress, but there's still no pediatric intensive care unit specialty. The reason is we still have to go through the elements of politics and economics that can make it possible for uh, a specialty to develop. So for the financial issues, how do you pay for patients in the PICU? Uh, You have to pay for the patients and their medical care. You have to pay for the faculty because you are dealing very often with children who don't have insurance to be able to cover the medical care that the physicians are providing. The hospital has to support that. How do you have trainees? You need to have trainees develop uh, here. We're not talking just about residents but fellows. And How do you do research to advance the field? So these are things which we needed to resolve from a financial point of view in order to get this done. So there are a number of hidden agendas uh, that you need to take into account which are predictable. First is billing, you're caring for a patient that was a patient of Dr. X who saw the patient ever since he was born, has cared for all his immunizations, done everything. Now the patient is critically ill and in the intensive care unit and Dr. X would like to care for the patient in the PICU, it's his patient, he knows the family. But he can't do that because he's located 30 miles away. He can't come in and spend his time living in the unit. How do you negotiate the transfer of care and the communications that's necessary to be able to assume that responsibility? Uh, How do you get hospital support for doing this? It's not a self-supporting area in which on the patient billing by itself, you could support the number of people that are needed 24 hours a day, seven days a week, sometimes multiple full-time physicians in the unit at the same time faculty physicians at the same time? How do you negotiate with the administrator? And related personnel, uh, where do you get the quality and the number of nurses, because the nursing staff ratio is completely different in a pediatric intensive care unit. Who's responsible for negotiating that and and deciding that? And there were some battles now, as you might anticipate, between pediatrics and anesthesia, because in some fashion, anesthesia had assumed the mantle early on in the post-op recovery rooms, And pediatrics now said, well, we're developing a specialty. How would we develop this? And the circumstances, how did anesthesia get involved? How did pediatrics get involved? And how did we resolve those issues? So one of the reasons anesthesia got involved was because anesthesia was a much more lucrative specialty than uh, than pediatrics, which tends to be underfunded. And well-meaning people who were in charge of the anesthesia department at children's hospitals or in situations like Johns Hopkins, where I shared both roles, would be willing to invest money in developing a pediatric intensive care unit staff and, and fellows for this. So as an example, in my own case, telling a personal story, I came to Hopkins as a pediatrician, and after a year I had hired fellows, and unfortunately my well-meaning chairman of pediatrics was unable to pay for the fellows. So I had to have fellows. I mean, I needed fellows because we couldn't be in the unit, two of us couldn't be in the unit 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And the then anesthesia chairman stepped up and offered to pay for my fellows if I would do only one thing, and that would be transfer my appointment from pediatrics and anesthesia anesthesia to one that was anesthesia and pediatrics. And I think that was very common because they had the resources and pediatrics didn't. And that was the original entree, at least in the United States. I'm focusing now on the history in the United States to why anesthesia has become so intimately involved in pediatric intensive care. Now it turned out, at least in my opinion, and ultimately I think in general, uh, to have people who combine training in pediatrics and anesthesia. As uh, we set up our unit, that you couldn't be a fellow unless you had uh, a pediatric background. You could become in as a pediatric intensive care fellow, or you could come in as a pediatric anesthesia, uh, pediatrics and uh, anesthesia training to get uh, uh, ICU training. And in some cases, in many cases, we had triple trained people pediatrics anesthesiology and critical care we also had pediatrics pulmonary and in intensive care pediatrics cardiology and in intensive care but everyone had to be a pediatrician why was that important that was important for conceptual reason which i believe to this day the responsibility of a pediatric intensive care physician is to be the complete physician responsible for knowledge about all the organ systems in a patient about the congenital malformations that are responsible f- that are for some of the conditions for the understanding of the congenital conditions which interfered with or dealt with the treatment that you wanted to give the patient. So unless you had a comprehensive pediatric knowledge you really could only do something like turn the ventilator. We didn't think that was pediatric intensive care so we insisted that all people were pediatricians. So now we're up to science, technology, politics, and economics, and now I'm going to add one new element. How do you create a real academic specialty? And that's really one of the issues. If this is going to live on generation upon generation, as it has 50 years now, the circumstances, it had to have an academic, root because that is the wellspring from which tomorrow's leaders, tomorrow's trainees, tomorrow's providers of care come. So you had to do this, which meant that you had to meet the standards of uh, academic specialty in the leading institutions in the country. You couldn't make up the standard. You had to meet a national standard that everyone expected a specialty to have. And we were an embryonic specialty with uh, cardiac, pulmonary, neurologic, deep hypothermic cardiac arrest, ventilators and PEEP, near drowning and rise syndrome. But how do we formalize it? How do we make it real so it's an academic specialty? Now here was a very important period of time because there were people who thought they could figure out ways to do this, whereas I had the good fortune of having trained in multiple specialties in, in pediatrics to understand there was an international standard. Any specialty I went to in pediatrics at the leading hospitals where I had trained had a specialty which then had a series of things intrinsic to it. So for me, this was not inventing the wheel. It was looking at another specialty. So having been trained in pediatric cardiology, I thought that was the model. What did pediatric cardiology have to do to be a model unto itself? I think the same thing would be true for pediatric neurology or pediatric pulmonology, but the circumstance was I was familiar with pediatric cardiology. As a result of that, I knew that we needed to have a fellowship. In that time, two-year fellowships were novel. Now they're often three years, but the reason for the two years was to have a year to do research and a year to do clinical. We needed to have research training because no one would have an academic specialty unless the people in the specialty were trained to publish articles in appropriate journals so their colleagues and peers would have respect for them and defer to them in decision-making instead of saying it's not a real specialty, we don't really need to listen to them because they don't really understand the complexity of what's going on. We had to have a textbook, and what's more, the textbook had to be one in which the comprehensive nature of the textbook was enough so that you didn't need to read something about respiratory care in this textbook and then go to someone else's textbook on renal disease, someone else's textbook on infectious disease. That would not be a real textbook. We needed to have boards. It was clear. I mean, this is, you know, right now in retrospect, it's easy to see. But when we did this at the time, this was innovative thinking to say this was the standard we were going to set. We needed to have boards so you would be certified. You just couldn't pop in and and, and do intensive care. We needed to have a journal and we needed to have national and international meetings to do this. So when I got involved in this, This was my work list. Uh, This was what we did right from the beginning because we knew what the standard was and we were determined to meet the standard at the highest levels. And I think that uh, that has resulted, as other people did in other institutions, I'm not trying to say that we were the only people that did this. This is the standard we all use, but it's the standard that other specialties use. So the purpose of this book, this was the textbook of pediatric intensive care. You notice it's volume one. It was two volumes at the beginning. The reason why we wrote this enormous textbook was because of the fact that we were trying to fill the expectations that I outlined. This is a book that contains the physiology, the pharmacology of all the various diseases, the treatment modalities, the history of the congenital heart disease, all the possible anomalies that could be associated with your disease. And as a result, I think it was possible to practice 95% of what you wanted to do inside the intensive care unit using the textbook. No textbook can be so comprehensive that the unusual patient would not need to be checked into, but this was the standard, and this was, therefore, one additional thing. It was the means of communication between physicians in different groups in different places to understand what was the body of knowledge about which we were forming the specialty. And we paid, I think. Uh, good role in trying to define the body of knowledge which was at the heart of the specialty. And that's why I think it's in the fifth edition when it was published. I had the good fortune to have it listed as the Bible of Pediatric Intensive Care in its review in the Journal of Pediatrics. And we've tried to stay true to that as my successors have continued to do this. Dr. Nichols uh, uh, has done an excellent job with a number of colleagues around the world to keep this current, and I expect this to continue for long periods of time. I would like to tell you about the first picku board. We all met at the pediatric intensive uh, at the pediatric boards in Chapel Hill, North Carolina and hammered out what were the credentials to be able to sit for the exam and then we sat for the exam so to speak by writing it. We spent weeks and weeks writing the exam, making sure that George didn't put in too many cardiology questions and I didn't put in too many questions on neurologic intensive care and how he didn't put in everything on that he thought was important on respiratory care. It was a combination serving to have a common sense of information we shared. Then we had the good fortune to learn after we had done that, that they were not going to make us take the board exam. So to this day, I have Certificate 8, but I would like to confess historically that uh, I never had to take the exam. And (laughs) I was very grateful because it was a pretty hard exam. The next thing we did was decide that we needed to have a World Congress. We needed to meet our uh, colleagues around the world. For me and for a number of us, the interaction of helping and getting to know our people around the world was a very instrumental and very fulfilling portion of the growth of the field because we were responsible for the care of children around the world not just in our hospital not just in our country so we decided to have the first world congress of pediatric intensive care in baltimore in 1992 and in order to do that we had to do various things such as provide support for professors from Lening- leningrad who couldn't afford to come actually if you want to know buy them shoes when they came to the United States because they didn't have adequate shoes, bring people from different portions around the world and help support them in terms of what to do. And I would say to you, given the era, uh, I would share something I didn't uh, uh, haven't said publicly before. I was visited by the FBI who wanted to know why I was bringing people from the Soviet Union and from all these other countries to Johns Hopkins and supporting them to do this. And the reason was because a higher level of priority than the political problems we face at any one time is caring for your children children. And my sense is that caring for the children was the overriding reason we did this, and I explained this to the FBI and they left me alone. Somewhere that's a record, but I want to give you an idea of the kind of strange things you run into when you get involved in this.
1: I'd like to turn to our colleagues around the world now and ask you some questions. In your response, please state your city and country location. Do you have a fellowship program? Do you have a recognized subspecialty or accreditation? in pediatric critical care medicine. Do you have a clinical research track or endeavor? Thank you, Professor Rogers. I know that you studied history before going into medicine. You studied it at Columbia. And now you spend a lot of your time studying archeology, span traveling and understanding about different cultures, and um, also understanding civilization. And that's a wonderful vantage point to actually bring you to the last part of your talk, which is where are we going? What is the future for our specialty?
2: Well, my sense is that what you're asking is a very important question. But in order to answer it, you have to go out of the fields of the specialty. You even have to go outside of medicine and look to the real world, because we are always being captured by new events that we didn't anticipate. And if you're sensitive to what those events are, you can take a look and see what your field will develop in response to those outside events. Just think about the impact of the internet and how it's changed our field. And my sense is that as a result of that, you have to begin to think of what are the fundamental questions that you want to ask and keep track of. For me, there are two basic questions which I think occupy the mainstream of my thoughts on the future of pediatric intensive care. And they relate very much to the areas of where is the intensive care unit, what is its physical location, I'll explain that in a minute, and where do we go with data and artificial intelligence and the accumulation of information. So let me go through those one by one. So from my point of view, uh, the future next to exit, so to speak, is first looking at the technology. The technology has developed significantly. And how we've made rounds in the PICU has changed over the years. And there tends to be increasingly many, many places, and even in my own experience, where we watch the monitors, not the patients. Once we watch the monitors, which I'll go through, it's possible for us to watch the monitors right next to the patient, it's possible for us to watch the monitors from the nursing station, it's possible for us to watch the monitors from around the world. And how you care for patients over time, where physical facilities are, where the the physicians are related to the physical facilities is changing dramatically, and I'll take you through that. I will tell you that you can have your iPhone take your EKG you can electronically send it to someone who will read it and send it back to you in 15 seconds, okay, and have it read live. So that's the beginning of the change. So then if you look, we're actually going through a transition in which the the circumstances that we're going from observation, look at the patient, auscultation and palpation, that's how we went to medical school. Please sit up, I want to listen to your chest. Then we went to biochemical organ monitoring, by that, I mean, uh, what's my liver function? How long is it taking for me to clot, you know, and so on? And that has just proliferated into thousands and thousands. Of things. And once again, I would like to point out that move from just the laboratory in your hospital to laboratories that are spread throughout the world where you can send uh, samples for anything. Then you get into invasive monitoring, we went through that, and now increasingly non invasive monitoring. And non invasive monitoring is the key where it's recorded, how it's recorded, and where you make the decisions from. Once it's non-invasive, it can be in the ether and be seen anywhere. So this is an intensive care unit. So take a look at the intensive care unit, and I will tell you, and I make rounds. I made rounds as recently as yesterday in such an intensive care unit. I will tell you that all the data that's there can be captured, lumped together, repackaged, reformatted, reprogrammed, and sent to you anywhere in the world. When I was much younger, my brother-in-law was a radiologist at Stanford, uh, affiliated hospital at Stanford, and he wanted to go home at night, so he sent his x-rays that were taken at night to Australia to be read and sent back to the, his place in the morning. In a sense, that was the beginning of how the world really functions. So I'd like to now go through different ways that monitoring has developed. So we're gonna to move to molecular monitoring. And I, I had the good fortune at one time to be the senior vice president of a New York stock exchange company that ultimately became Solera and sequenced the human genome. And in that situation, I would just say I learned about the potential for the rapid onset of molecular monitoring at a genetic level. And the circumstance is you now can very inexpensively multiply the DNA, enormously amplify it, We'll check it for SNPs, for SNPs, and uh, so on, and that means that you can detect substances in blood and in tissue that you never could before and do it in a fashion where it's just about real time. At the same time, it might take you to get a, a blood test back, a traditional blood test back. You can get genetic information back. And that's going to turn out to be really important, and I'm going to tell you two examples historically, and then I'll just discuss it potentially going forward because it's growing and developing. So molecular markers of disease began in prenatal and moved to cancer and will are and will be moving to the PICU. So the first practical use of circulating DNA came in 1997 and showed that a pregnant woman carrying male babies had fetal Y chromosomes in their blood. That discovery allowed doctors to check a baby's sex early in gestation without disturbing the fetus and ultimately to screen for developmental uh, disorders such as Down syndrome without resorting to invasive testing. So this was earlier molecular testing which you were just looking for various uh, chromosomes. But once this occurred, it didn't take a long time to understand all of the implications. And now it fills the newspaper all the time, but now it turns out when cancer cells rupture and die, they release their contents, including circulating tumor DNA and genome fragments that flow through the bloodstream, it's now possible to pick those up, to amplify them and to get what are called liquid biopsies. And you can do personal medicine in which you follow the care of a patient, everyone understands personal medicine and what that is, the implication of that is, and follow the patient is responding well, not responding well, not by waiting for an x-ray to show a tumor that's uh, growing inside the liver just to wait and take a liquid biopsy and see whether or not the markers for that tumor are starting to increase in frequency in any fashion. Now for the pediatric intensive care unit, it's clear that we should be using and will be using, and I assume there are people watching this who are using these molecular markers for disease. And the molecular markers for disease should be able to tell us detection of septic shock, when you become unresponsive to certain drugs, when you become all kinds of other things. In fact, I wrote 20 years ago that in the end we'll be making death decisions using molecular markers because if the brain is injured, it's going to be releasing things into the circulation, and you'll be able to quantify that. Uh, I've gone from the point in which it took two EEGs and a neurology consult to declare someone brain dead to simpler and simpler and simpler things, and I'm wondering whether or not ultimately we're going to quantify brain injury directly from blood samples because the DNA specific for the brain, which is released, into the blood will turn out to be available for us to test. Now that's a hypothetical concept, but it's an example of the kind of work that we potentially could do. Now having said that, uh, I'd like to discuss telemedicine and and the PICU. My sense is that hospitals will become intensive care units and that the supporting uh, facilities that are beds will gradually disappear. I'm not the beds in the intensive care unit, the beds that are not intensive care directed. And greater and greater percentage of the hospitals are and will be coming intensive care units, while ambulatory centers will take care of the patients otherwise. But once you do this, you get involved in where do you have the critical mass of physicians to care for this, to care for this 24 hours a day. How big can you have an intensive care unit to have how many physicians, which all of whom are on site, to be able to monitor the patients, give instructions to the fellows as to what to do. This is a real problem. I, I know one of my former fellows who runs a unit that has 120 beds, 120 beds. The decision-making process in a unit that big must be just enormously difficult and getting a critical mass. What happens if five of your physicians leave in your cardiac intensive care unit? Suddenly they got a better offer from the, for you know, more money down the street. How do you compensate for that? You can't bring in five physicians as a group immediately. What do you do? And I think you're going to find that telemedicine is going to play an important part in this because this has gone from military to mass casualty to national and international mechanisms to do that. And I'd like to give you some real life examples, if, if you would allow me. So I took this out of the BBC the surgeon who operates 400 kilometers away. Uh, This is from BBC. Doctors are controlling scalpel-wielding robots in real operations from afar, reports BBC. Is this the future of surgery? This, once again, is the military investing in the fact that they cannot pre-deploy doctors to various places to care for patients. Obviously, we'll go from military to mass casualty and from mass casualty to existing units perhaps in the meantime to emergency situations in which you are dealing with uh, uh, trauma centers that are put up in tents on site, and where do you get the doctors there to do that? So there's a logical sequence that you could largely predict would be important in in reference to this. So this happens to be doctors operating on a patient 400 uh, kilometers away by using their hands. You can put your hands into gloves, and the gloves are mimicked on the other side, and this is just getting off the ground in terms of what to do. There are steps to be taken in some of these, legal, financial, and practical. But I would say to you, to some extent, it's largely done already, and I will prove it to you because I'd like to show you two of my former residents. Uh, On the left is uh, Dr. Brian Rosenthal, on the right is uh, Dr. Mike Breslow. They were in the surgical intensive care unit at Johns Hopkins. They were used to making rounds, basically a little bit from outside the unit, uh, outside the patient's bedroom, looking at the monitors, and they said, we could do this at a distance. So what they went and did is they developed a company, Visicu, V-I-S-I-C-U, which they took public by setting up a, a tele-intensive care monitoring and advice to physicians at distances until they had a critical mass of people signed up Hospitals signed up, hospitals who couldn't attract and retain intensive care physicians. That company is now the heart of the Philips telemedicine project in which uh, Dr. Breslow is still associated with that, I don't know about Dr. Rosenthal, but they're the ones who invented and popularized that, having solved the problems that I mentioned to you about the technology, the legal, the financial, and so on and so forth. This is a successful enterprise in which the measurements show that, and these are old data, I don't have too much new data, this is three, four years old, that about 5% of units at that time uh, were, uh, were using telemedicine uh, for the intensive care. The number of ICU beds is over 6,000. I assume now it's over five, six, seven, eight times that number. And Philips and some other organizations uh, uh, have major investments in this. How much does it take to see the same thing will happen in children? This is very reminiscent to me of the periods of time when we had uh, uh, advances in coronary care and coronary care units and so on, but the children hadn't done this. The pediatric intensive care unit is an open opportunity to do this, not only nationally, but internationally. It can be done for profit, it can be done for for humanitarian reasons, to provide advice and counsel to places around the world in which the technology is available to transfer the information, to communicate back, but the knowledge base of the people who are responsible for those patients is not as high as it should be. And I think that this is an absolutely predictable event. And just to make it really current, uh, when this is being uh, uh, recorded, we've had two hurricanes in the United States, including Hurricane Harvey. And here's an article that is on telemedicine, which I got off Google on Tropical Storm Harvey has been devastating to the Gulf Coast down near Houston. And they're making uh, uh, medical recommendations here using the business of, uh, of telemedicine to be able to do it because the infrastructure had been wiped out in Houston, had been wiped out. And physicians were torn, should they be home, caring for their family, should they be at the hospital? You have to have more backup, and the potential to do that is there. So my sense of this is that if you look at the real world and you look creatively, I like to say sometimes orthogonally, meaning look at it in new creative ways differently, and you see these trends ongoing, You can make predictions of the future which are not certain to be correct but highly likely to be correct. And if you build a career doing that, you could either be wrong or you could be right. I I had the good fortune to make a couple of lucky and hopefully well-informed decisions early on which have been responsible for a very fulfilling career, and I'm trying to encourage you to begin to think and do the same things. So my sense is that only one area left, and that's big data. What do I mean by big data? Well, if you were to just spend a minute thinking about how much of your time and attention is currently spent on trying to figure out how the government is is monitoring us and vice versa, you have a little insight as to the volumes of data that can be collected. How do we apply this in medicine? I have uh, been the chairman of the Reagan-Udall Foundation, which is the United States Congress's uh, uh, advisory board to the FDA, and I'm aware about how the FDA is using, quote, big data to analyze various complications of medicine administration. I'd like to explain to you why what the principles are and ask you to think whether or not you, who are interested in the Internet, might think about how to accumulate data in new and novel ways to deal with this. And obviously companies uh, are capable of doing this with enormous amounts of uh, data storage. So if you look at unstructured data, make believe that all of those little uh, or individual pediatric intensive care units who are administering, let's choose a, a drug, Dilantin. And some of them have complications from Dilantin, or some of these are doing a procedure like a radial artery catheterization, and they have a rare complication where the uh, arterial arcade is, is a problem, and they have a hand amputation develop. If they have one, and it happens once every five years, nobody cares. I mean, care for the patient, but it's not gonna change your practice. What happens if that occurred every time, once every five years in 1,000 units? That's 5,000 amputations. 5,000 amputations, what's the benefit you need to get to be responsible for 5,000 amputations in children or complications of medicine? So you build it as structured data, source data, intermediate data, and resultant data. So the FDA is interested in looking at this because as you administer drugs, very rare complications, let's just say, one in 5,000 develop a serious complication. If you look at the tens of millions of people taking Lipitor, one in 5,000 is a significant number of complications. So how do we as a pediatric intensive care unit begin to think about this? Of course, our initial temptation is we're gonna do quality assurance and do it inside our unit but you have the unstructured data problem. You're dealing with a sampling place in which the data being accumulated is way too small. So we're gonna end up congregating this data progressively in order to find out answers to what's the best therapy, what's the complication, all the rest of the data. And I would suspect that there are careers for people in putting these data together between institutions and dealing, large numbers of institutions, and dealing with issues such as uh, HIPAA and the privacy of the patient's identifier. Does the hospital or the pediatric intensive care unit that's having more complications, how does it protect its identity from doing this? How does the physician do this? How do you analyze the data? Lots of questions. But there's a career in how to do this for the data that you saw the picture of in the intensive care unit that you saw all those monitors. That monitoring data has to be accumulated and analyzed at a level which is thousands of times more sophisticated than it is presently. And it's possible the technology exists, the people working on it don't exist. It's an idea you should think about. So, as I was saying, the trends may not be visible in one PICU, but uh, the resultant data will make it possible to look at through hundreds or dozens or hundreds or maybe even thousands of PICUs. So, the current examples that you look at this are genetic variations in response to therapeutic drugs, mechanisms to prevent iatrogenic injury, and unique characteristics of patients who survive critical illness. Just think about what people have tried to learn from the rare AIDS patient who ends up responding from AIDS and having no residual AIDS virus in the pa- very rare patient. What happens if you could put 50 of those together and do genetic testing? Well, we have 50 patients who have respond to our diseases in some unusual fashion, if you could congregate the data. So data congregation and big data and its analysis uh, uh, across wide spectrums, I think, is a future major development in the field. So my sense of the future is, as I said earlier, I didn't want to take you backwards and explain to you the interesting uh, history uh, uh, at the beginning of the process by itself. I want to explain it to you so you can take pride in where you are and how we got there. I did it because I wanted to stimulate you to think about how you would use your analysis of what the potential is to create new opportunities for the future so the care of children will increase under your watch as I like to think it occurred under my watch. It's a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much, Professor Rogers. That was a privilege, and I thank you for the challenge, uh, which actually looks optimistic, uh, and we hope that the people watching this can actually move the field forward.
0: Thank you. Thank you. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide.